Acts chapter 18 this evening, and Genesis to Revelation on Sunday nights, if you're new with us, and uh, just a reminder, uh, as we're finding our place there, that next Sunday night is going to be our Christmas night of worship, and uh, so the whole evening will be uh, set aside for uh, the different gifts in song and music that will happen, and uh, our uh, hearts prepared for the Christmas season in that way, and uh, and then also time of fellowship and refreshment after the time, and so everyone's invited. Everyone will meet in the room, so the kiddos and all, everybody will be in here. And then uh, just to remember that the um, a night like that is just the easiest night in the world to invite someone that doesn't know the Lord, whether a family member, a friend, or a co-worker, to just come. And uh, uh, there's no easier way to share the gospel or to introduce uh, the truth of the Christmas season than to come to something like this and to just simply explain what it's all about as the uh, uh, night unfolds. And then for them to be able to hear the same truth that has affected our life and uh, hopefully do the same thing with it that we have done. So uh, remember that for next Sunday night at, uh, at 6 o'clock. After these things, Paul departed from Athens, and he went to Corinth, and he found a certain Jew named Aquila, born in Pontus, who had recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla, come now into Greece, to Corinth, because Claudius, the Roman emperor at that time, had commanded all the Jews to depart from Rome. And Paul came to Aquila and Priscilla. And so because he was of the same trade, he stayed with them. So they offered him lodging and he worked. For by uh, occupation, uh, both Aquila and Paul uh, were tent makers. This is a, a very personal, uh, I, I like the Bible in so many different ways. And, and uh, one of the things that's nice about uh, this chapter and so much of the book of Acts is it introduces us and let's just see the Apostle Paul in a, in a beautiful way, the uniqueness of, of his life, to see the trials that he went through to stay faithful um, to God's call upon his life, and uh, we'll recognize them uh, related to our own lives, uh, maybe not to the degree that the Apostle Paul faced those things, but uh, just great insights in what it means to uh, serve the Lord. And so here we have the beginning as Paul finds himself, as, uh, as we've been in the last couple of weeks, he is going to conclude his second missionary journey, and uh, uh, second of three, four if you want to count, going uh, imprisoned from Caesarea to uh, his imprisonment in Rome. Uh, but the conclusion of that second missionary journey, he leaves Athens, you might remember from last week, and then he comes now uh, to uh, Corinth in a church that's very well known to us as Christians uh, because there's two epistles in the New Testament that Paul wrote uh, to that church, but here's the record uh, of the birth of, of that uh, church. 
Corinth was famous as a capital in the Roman uh, Empire. It was the capital city of uh, that part of Greece known as Achaia. It was a commercial center because of its geographical location. A lot of trade uh, by sea and, and uh, went overland in the vicinity of it, uh, east and west. And so anytime you're on a major trade route, money is flowing through, goods are flowing through, uh, the, that city is going to generally become wealthy, not only in the ancient world, but uh, in the modern world today. It was a city that was fascinated with uh, sports, with art, uh, with architecture. Perhaps you've heard of Corinthian columns. It has its roots all the way back in uh, the city of Corinth. But most of all, in the ancient world, it was most famous for, um, in, in the Roman Empire, for its drunkenness and for its sexual immorality. And uh, it was considered the most uh, wicked city uh, in the Roman Empire. Now, if you've ever done any study of the Roman Empire and the gods that the Romans worshipped, which were simply adaptations of uh, the Greek gods, you know that uh, sexual morality and uh, uh, soberness was not always a strong suit of what was worshipped and the gods that were worshipped. And so to have the, this city be known as the most uh, uh, sexually immoral and drunken in the entire Roman Empire is doing something. If a Corinthian was ever portrayed on stage in Greece, he was always shown uh, as drunk. Uh, the Greeks had a saying to play the Corinthian, uh, which meant that a person, he's playing uh, the Corinthian, which means that uh, he's living a life of uh, uh, a gross sexual immorality. And it was just sayings that had worked their way into the culture because of, of the culture. Because it was a meeting place of the East and the West in terms of its trade and all, there were temples that were erected in Corinth uh, to every kind of god you could imagine in the ancient world. Uh, it was said concerning uh, the temple of Venus or the temple of Aphrodite that was located there that the priests of uh, Venus uh, owned more than a thousand prostitutes and sodomites who were rented out day by day to the thousands of sailors that came in uh, to the city uh, by way of, uh, of the ships that brought the commerce from the ancient uh, world. Imagine 10, this is just one temple in the city, 10,000 prostitutes, religious prostitutes, male and female, uh, working that city in terms of sexual immorality, to say nothing of the sexual immorality that was going on quite independent of Aphrodite or Venus or any of the other gods. And it wasn't just the, the, the sailors, it, it permeated uh, the, pretty much the entire city. So we look at it and we say, well, what in the world would we um, compare in the United States of America, compare to ancient Corinth. And of course, we all think of Turlock and, um, or Oakdale. Just get a little root of bitterness towards those cities. And uh, sometimes it slips out. And uh, so the closest thing that we might have historically is Las Vegas. Uh, but the way that sin was practiced and openly and all that went on um, uh, there, it would, it would make Las Vegas look like a, uh, a neighborhood book club. 
in, in terms of what was going on there. And yet the Holy Spirit used Paul here now to establish a church uh, that, that uh, we speak about to this day, letters that are a part of, of the New uh, Testament, one of the most famous churches in the, uh, the first century. Uh, the church was, became sizable enough um, that uh, it had the luxury, so to speak, of uh, splitting of dividing into factions. I'm of Paul, I'm of Apollos, I'm of Peter, I'm of Jesus. You've got to be a fair-sized church unless you've got four very cantankerous people uh, in the church and they're all going to align that way. But it was a, a tremendous church in terms of size that uh, occurred there. And uh, Paul wasn't kidding when he wrote to them later in his first epistle, uh, do you not know that the unrighteous shall not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor homosexuals, nor sodomites, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor extortioners will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. And we say hallelujah to that. And they knew that. But you were washed, but you were sanctified, but you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of our God. So he comes into this city, and uh, this certainly tells us that no uh, city should ever be put in the hopeless category in our minds as Christians uh, based upon the sheer level and amount of sin or debauchery that occurs uh, within the city. Uh, nobody should ever take uh, any city of the world uh, off of their uh, being a missionary list or a city as a potential site for uh, a church plant simply because of the wickedness of the city. Um, one of my hopes, and certainly it's the hope of so many people, is that um, a little bit of what's happening among younger people in Europe right now. Europe is ahead of us in terms of being post-Christian and then the population by and large having to live in that, the emptiness of, of that, no meaning to life, no purpose to life except eat, drink, and be merry. Tomorrow we die. That, what kind of a life does that produce? And what kind of appetites in terms of our conscience and the, the need for meaning and purpose in life. It doesn't satisfy um, any of that. But, you know, if you're going to do what the Western world has done and said that, well, the fulfillment of this thirst for meaning and purpose is going to be found in uh, finally getting enough sin and practice, uh, seeking enough education and all these different kinds of things, and if you do enough of all of this, then that, uh, that emptiness in your life is going to be fulfilled. And so, uh, counting from 1960 on in Western Europe, and uh, in the United States of America, uh, they have been able to give, uh, people have been able to explore that philosophy for about 63 years. And things are messier than ever. And uh, the realization that this doesn't satisfy, it just simply puts us into uh, bondage. Ultimate meaning and purpose cannot be found there. And, but sometimes it will take a culture a significant length of time convinced, as Solomon warns us against in the book of Ecclesiastes, uh, uh, in, in the, that 
um, uh, living that kind of life is uh, va uh, vanity and vexation of spirit. It's emptiness and it's a frustrating uh, life. If I'm trying to satisfy these needs that are in our life, we've been made for a relationship with God and I'm never going to be satisfied in life until I'm in that relationship with God. But sometimes we're slow learners and we need 63 years I don't know how long Solomon took in the book of Ecclesiastes to figure out that life is found in a relationship with God and not everything that's found, uh, a relationship with everything that is found under the sun, under the S-U-N in the context of the creation. But probably quicker, quicker than 63 years. And so uh, these things now, uh, as people have been able to explore these things with unparalleled uh, uh, freedom and access in human history and uh, to find them coming up empty and then now a turn toward God. And that's a hope uh, some of that is happening in Europe right now, especially among the younger population. They've been uh, victims of this great experiment. And, uh, and so we hope the same thing for our own country, that sooner or later people wake up and some of that's happening. I see uh, evidence of it that, uh, that this is not going to satisfy, this is not taking us, this is not creating noble human beings, this is not creating a great nation. We're living off of the greatness of a godly heritage. We're certainly not creating that or enlarging that. And so, um, but uh, just because a city becomes uh, wicked in that way, it's never to be ignored. Oftentimes, the city's had time to explore and, and come to realize the emptiness of such a life and now ready then for the message of the gospel. And so Paul comes in with that message of truth, message of forgiveness, imagine, everybody needs the message of forgiveness in life. How much more did they need it in Corinth? I have never hired a prostitute of Epaphrodites in my life. I don't know what the guilt of that is. Not a boy, not a girl. So I don't know what that feels like to live with every day and then to need forgiveness from. I've got my own sins. They don't need to be the biggest sins in the world to make me thankful for forgiveness. But certainly this was a city that was ready for a message of God's grace and his forgiveness. And the devil always overplays his hand. He always ends up going too far and then producing a, a fertile ground then for God's truth to come into uh, that field and the seed of, of, of the gospel. And so it happens here. And Paul comes then to Corinth and he meets a, a, a couple of people, a husband and wife that we're familiar with, or if you're not familiar with him yet, you will be as you learn the Bible. We get introduced to this very godly Jewish couple named Aquila and Priscilla. And uh, they had previously, we're told, lived in Rome, uh, but it appears that a, a persecution of uh, Jewish Christians in Rome uh, led to uh, Emperor, Roman Emperor Claudius 
driving them out of Rome. They then made their way to the city of Corinth. Historical records uh, indicate that this action was taken by Claudius uh, in response to Jewish unrest in the city over uh, impulsore Christos, that is as a result of uh, Jewish Christians preaching Christ um, in the city of Rome. And so he just took and said, I'm not going to deal with this. I'm not going to get familiarized myself evidently with, with both sides of this. The Jews are fighting over this. And he just banished all of them out of the city of Rome. Paul somehow comes into contact with them there in the city uh, of, of Corinth. They had a lot in common. Uh, they're uh, Jewish. They're also Christians. Uh, they share the same, uh, shared the same livelihood, the, the, the livelihood of, of uh, uh, tent making. And somehow in the course of all these things, their paths kind of crossed and, and they began uh, a personal relationship with one another and a life of Christian service that uh, would hold all the way through to the end of Paul's life and his, uh, his martyrdom. Paul mentions them uh, repeatedly and always favorably uh, in his epistles. It appears that uh, they invited Paul to live with them during his stay in Corinth. We remember Paul had no outside uh, support for his uh, missionary uh, journeys at all. So he made tents to support himself. Uh, it is here, and only because of here in verse 3, that we know that the way that the Apostle Paul supported himself in his missionary journeys was as a tent maker. So we knew that he supported himself and uh, for his own eating and drinking and clothing and shelter while he was on these missionary journeys. But here we're told uh, that uh, he was, it was by means of, of, of tent making. And so when we talk about uh, ministers today being tent makers, missionaries being tent makers, this pastor is a pastor who is tent making. It means that he is uh, pastoring a church, but he also holds a job in order to support himself um, in that position because typically the church isn't uh, large enough to meet the financial needs and so often with a missionary um, uh, as well. And so uh, Paul uh, was a tent maker. They made tents out of leather in those days. And uh, every Jewish boy, uh, they, they were all raised under a particular motto among the Jews in the ancient world. And the motto was, love work. He who does not teach his son a trade teaches him robbery. And uh, so especially if you thought God was calling you to some kind of a theological uh, thing, in, uh, calling in your life, um, uh, your parents would look and say, that's great, but you still got to eat. And, and it was a rare person who, who could be supported. Uh, by, uh, by means of being Bible teachers, old, uh, in the, uh, the rabbis or, or otherwise. Very few of them. And so they taught them a trade. So they could do the one, but to support themselves with a, a trade. Um, it's interesting that our uh, culture is uh, waking up to the fact uh, that um, university education uh, might not be for everybody. In fact, at this point, it might not be for anybody. Just kidding, in part. 
what indoctrination centers some of them have become. It's just really awful. The only thing worse for me as a parent would be to realize I just paid $60,000 a year to have them do that uh, to my kid. So I'm not, uh, obviously there's great learning that goes on in these institutions, but there's certainly um, some craziness that's going on. But here's the recognition, education, education, higher education, which is fabulous. We shouldn't, you know, we shouldn't extol ignorance in life. Uh, but it's not for everybody. And so what are these trades that people can learn and uh, earn a living that way and earn a good living and, and uh, raise a family and so forth? I don't know if you've tried to get a plumber recently uh, or tried to find somebody to uh, do a little something uh, remodeling in the house. I mean, in the last few years, it's impossible to find them. I remember we wanted something done in the bathroom, and uh, I, ca I probably called 10 contractors. And, uh, and they said, we're booked out 18, 18 months before we'll even look at a project, you know. So I thought, um, that's a pretty good, uh, pretty good life. I mean, they're not making $7 an hour. I mean, they're doing quite well. And so there's real wisdom in the, in the ancient, uh, ancient world. And so um, I learned, in case something happens to me in, in this occupation, I've, I've been learning how to deal cards. And um, I'm just kidding. So, but these lives come together. It's, it is interesting when you stop, and we're not even told specifically how they came across one another in the city of of Corinth, but it just happened. And you think about how many relationships, meaningful relationships, lifelong relationships in our life um, that when you stop and you think about it, you say, well, that's been a, that's been a, my whole life, you know, my whole adult life, that relationship has meant so much to me, but I couldn't tell you how it started. I, I just know that it did, and sometimes we know how it did. And it's funny how the Lord does that that kind of thing. One of my best friends in life is, he's just any, any minute really ready to, gonna head off into heaven. Uh, Lee Shaw, Napa chaplain. And uh, I was in a little march that they had for him in the city of Napa this last week. It was a candlelight march. And I forget, he's he done like 7,000 memorial services and 7,000 um, uh, death visitations and so forth. And, in his ministry as a chaplain there in the city and the impact that he has made. I mean, it's uh, incredible. They blocked off streets. They had fire engines. The police blocked off the streets. The lights were going. Law enforcement, fire department personnel, hundreds of people walking in a line to come in front of his house. And up in the upper, uh, upper story of his house was a light in the room where he is laying in bed with his family there and uh, saying Amazing Grace and Jesus Loves Me. And then a, a song that I'd never heard before, but somebody played it on a box. And, um, and it was, maybe some of you'll recognize it, You Saved My Life. And uh, what a perfect song to be sung to him. And, but so many relationships these kind of relationships develop in our lives in the same way that they did with the Apostle Paul. 
and, uh, and with Aquila and Priscilla. They, they occur surrounded by, uh, out of the context of Christian service and uh, people fulfilling their call that God has called them to, and then these relationships just start to happen. That's why it's always important for us as Christians to be serving the Lord in our calling in some way, whatever that way is um, in life. Sometimes that's in the context of a local church. Sometimes it's outside. But one of the things about serving the Lord in a local church, especially if I'm a part of a church and I'd like to develop some meaningful relationships and get to know uh, people, Maybe you've noticed that you go out in the fellowship hall and uh, you're wanting to develop maybe some friends and there's a person sitting on the bench. You go over and you sit next to them on the bench and then you look right into their eyes and you say, I'm looking for a friend. I'm looking for a meaningful relationship. Uh, They'll leave their coffee, they'll leave their Bible and uh, race for a door. It just doesn't happen that way. It's uncomfortable for people. Somebody ever says that to you, what do you say next? I mean, what would you say next? But you put a a broom in a hand, or a mop, or a vacuum, or a cup of coffee, or whatever it might be, and a few other people around, and pretty soon one week they get to know my name, and the next week they know I'm married and have kids, or I'm not married, or the next week they know a little bit about this, and then conversations are occurring. And then these relationships uh, develop. Not only do we serve other people, but it's one of the great ways that relationship develops. Well, Paul runs into the same pattern in Corinth that he, he follows it, that he did elsewhere in verse 4. So he goes into the synagogue while he's in Corinth, and he reasoned in the synagogue uh, every Sabbath. You notice that word reasoned. Christianity is a reasonable um, religion. There's a reason for being a Christian. There's a reason for trusting in in recognizing Jesus as Messiah and as the Savior of the world. Um, I know I am a a deeply charismatic speaker. I mean, it it just happened. I I I don't practice to be this charismatic. In this dynamic, I just am. And so the focus of of the church, of course, isn't where you come in and you try and work people up into an emotional frenzy in, in a valley in their life in the hopes that they will make an emotional decision to now become a Christian. God can take everything and use it for His glory. If that's what happened for you, I'm glad for that. But it was His grace. What Paul did is he came in and he reasoned. He wanted people to have a reason that they could explain to other people for why they believed they need a Savior and why Jesus was that Savior. So he reasoned with them. He wanted their faith based in in reason supremely. Now, we love God with all of our heart, with all of our emotion. There's an emotional side to the Christian life, with all of our heart, all of our mind, all of our soul, and all of our strength. We love Him in that that way, the totality of our being, uh, but our faith is founded in reason. So He reasoned with Him every Saturday, every Sabbath, And he reasoned 
uh, and, and uh, with the aim of persuading uh, both Jews and Greeks. And he did persuade them. So, uh, and persuaded them in what way? Well, we know persuaded them to recognize Jesus as the promised Messiah, promised to the Jews, the Savior of the world, and he did as he did elsewhere, and that is he, he reasoned Jesus to be that Messiah based upon the Old Testament prophecies that Jesus fulfilled that, uh, that were a description of the Messiah that God would send into the world, and the fact that he matches that 100, uh, 100%. And so he persuaded them. So he, he reasoned, but he reasoned toward a commitment, toward a decision concerning Jesus. He wanted to persuade them, and, uh, and he did so with both Jews and Greeks in the synagogue. So you have Jews that are in the synagogue. You have God-fearers, Jews who were uh, recognized, the God of the Jews, to be God, but they, again, not circumcised and, and not adhering to um, uh, uh, keeping the Sabbath as, as was required in order to become uh, a proselyte and, or a, a convert to Judaism. And when Silas and Timothy had come from Macedonia, Paul was compelled by the Spirit uh, and testified to the Jews that Jesus is the Christ. And so uh, there we see uh, what it is that, that he was uh, declaring to them. So Silas and Timothy, uh, they rejoined Paul. Remember, he had left uh, them in uh, Berea to kind of strengthen that newly established church there. And we know from elsewhere in the New Testament that they brought Paul good news in the city of, of Corinth, uh, the report that the Christians in Thessalonica uh, were continuing to grow in their faith despite the great uh, uh, persecution that they were facing. That would have encouraged Paul a lot. Uh, they brought also a financial gift to Paul from uh, the city of uh, Philippi and uh, where Paul had established a church there. And that allowed Paul then during his ministry in the city of, of Corinth to uh, in large part abandon his, his tent making for his livelihood and give himself full time without distraction to, uh, to preaching the gospel uh, there. All of this would have been great news for Paul and maybe an explanation behind uh, the Paul being compelled in the spirit and then testified uh, to the Jews that Jesus is the Christ. You know, when you go from one city to the next city to the next city to the next city and you kind of um, leave uh, the community in flames, like Paul did, um, it's like the uh, old British uh, English, uh, English bishop said. He said, um, wherever I go, uh, uh, they serve me tea. Wherever Paul went, he started a revolution. And, uh, and so you go, I've been to this city, this city, this city, this city, and I'm fleeing from my safety, fleeing from my life, being urged by other Christians to leave. They're going to tear you from limb to limb. And then somebody t brings a report. It's stuck. That city in Berea is continuing. The city in Philippi is so strong and so supportive of what you did for them that other cities would have it, they sent you money. And Thessalonica, this place that was so hard and it looked like 
God, it's in your hands. You know what you'll do with it. And now it's strong. And the power of encouragement uh, in our, our lives and in our ministries. And we need it. And Paul needed it too. And, and greatly encouraged at what God was doing, just confirming and bringing fruit to bear upon uh, the, the ministry. That's always a, a tremendous uh, encouragement. And so uh, he uh, 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 was compelled by the Spirit and continued to testify to the Jews that Jesus is the Christ. But when they, that is the Jews within the synagogue, the jealous uh, Jews, uh, because so, there was so much fruit and people becoming Christians, uh, Jew and Gentile from within the synagogue, they um, opposed him and they blasphemed. So Paul kind of stays with it. He stays with it through the opposition to him. He was used to all of these things. But once they start blaspheming him and his message, and probably Jesus as the Messiah, blaspheme means injurious speech. Now they're using uh, their uh, voices, their language as a weapon against him. And never believe the, the old uh, fable, sticks and stones may break my bones, but words will never hurt me. They hurt worse than anything else in life. And so he then shook his garments, which was the equivalent of wiping the dust off of your feet. That's how they would have understood it. And uh, he declared to them, your blood be upon your own heads. I am clean. From now on, I'm going to the Gentiles. And so he quotes um, Ezekiel. When God spoke to Ezekiel and told him about the prophets who were to be watchmen on the wall of a city, spiritually speaking for the nation, and if I give you a message to preach and you preach it and they don't listen, then their blood is on their head for not listening. If I give you a message and you don't speak it, then their blood is on your head. And he says, I am free from your, uh, your blood. I'm clean. I deliver the message uh, to you. From now on, I'm going to go to the Gentiles alone. And so he follows his pattern to the Jew first and then uh, also to the Greek. And he departed from there. He, and he entered the house of a certain man named Justice. And this is a, a Gentile, uh, one who worshipped God. So he was a God-fearer in the, in, the, uh, in the synagogue, now becomes, obviously becomes a Christian. And his house was right next door uh, to the, the synagogue. And then Crispus, who was the ruler of the synagogue, and that word ruler there doesn't mean he was the rabbi of the synagogue. He was more like a, a deacon. He was the physical overseer uh, of the synagogue. He becomes a Christian now, and he believed on the Lord with all of his household, all of his servants, all of his children, all of his wife, and, and uh, many of the Corinthians hearing uh, the message uh, of, of salvation. They believed, they trusted in Jesus, Jesus, and they were uh, baptized. And so uh, this um, uh, tremendous fruit. Now you would look at that and say, well, boy, Paul just has to be on cloud nine at this point, um, except that uh, he uh, probably uh, wasn't. And uh, so he uh, he's seen this pattern over and over and over again. Uh, let's see how it goes. Um, I go to a city, 
And then I reason with them in the synagogue from the gospel that Jesus is the Messiah. And I preach the gospel to them. Salvation is not based on works, but a faith in Jesus Christ. A bunch of people get saved. It provokes the religious, some of the religious Jews uh, to jealousy. And then right about that point is where they almost beat me to death. Now, I don't know if you've ever been stoned to death and left at the side of a, a road uh, like happened to, to Paul in Lystra. I think that would stick with you in life. I don't know how many beatings you can take under the same scenario over and over and over again. This is like, this is time five. He's, he's already done it five times. This is the sixth place that this has the potential to occur before you start to flinch a little bit, maybe inside. You know God's called you. You know He's with you. You see the fruit of it. But uh, those, those beatings and being torn from limb to limb, those are, those are not fun experiences. So he has to be thinking and, and the way that everybody does. I don't care if they're an apostle. I don't care if they're a pastor. I don't care if they're a preacher, a missionary, whatever they might be. We think things we never say out loud, but we think them. And somehow Paul is fearful at this point in time that this is going to translate into, in this city, uh, another episode of great physical uh, abuse directed um, uh, uh, at him. And uh, that's where he is in the progression there in, in Corinth, and he's seen this movie over and over again, and so he was afraid. Now, the Lord spoke to Paul uh, in the night by a vision. And uh, so a vision is just simply, uh, it's kind of like a dream, only you're awake. So he speaks to him in, by a vision, and he said, don't be afraid. Now, why would the Lord say to Paul, um, don't be afraid, um, unless he was afraid? Present tense. Don't be afraid, present tense, unless he was present tense afraid. He felt fear. He was afraid for his safety on this. I don't think afraid of dying at all. But uh, as the old saying goes, um, it's, it's, I'm not afraid to die. It's the means that I'm afraid of. And uh, so don't be afraid. And here was the thing that was hanging in the balance maybe in Paul's mind, was to stop speaking. So maybe in these other cities, if I had spoken only to a point, and then I stopped, there's a place before that beating that I can stop speaking, and maybe this has a little different end. So the Lord says, if there was a temptation, it appears that there was, uh, to, to go silent, and to cease to speak effectively as he had done, but speak and do not keep silent. And then God does what he's so wonderful for about is he tells him these things. It's one thing to say, don't be afraid. And uh, it's kind of like saying, don't think of a pink elephant. <laughs> don't be afraid. Well, would you help me with a good reason? 
And could the reason that you give me not to be afraid be greater than what is making me afraid? God says, I know how to do that. And so he said, do not be afraid but speak, and do not keep silent. And then here's the reason word, for I am with you. One plus God is the majority. That settles everything. I'm with you, and no one will attack you to hurt you. Clearly, he was concerned about another physical attack upon his life. And then here's another reason word. I'm going to protect you. I'm going to be with you, for I have many people uh, in uh, this city. And so the Lord gives him the reasons uh, that um, he should continue, and not because of, of fear, uh, go silent, and the Lord uh, gives him that encouragement. There are those situations in life, whether it can be a cancer diagnosis or it can be uh, a rough spot in the ministry that God has called us to, or a difficult place with our the raising of our children or um, with our adult children, you can just fill in the blanks. There's so many things in life where the fears are so great in our lives that as wonderful as people are, other Christians, and as encouraging as they are to us, um, their voice won't make a dent in the fear. It, we have to hear something from God. Now, it's one thing when somebody comes and speaks to us and says, and then it's actually true, the Lord told me to give you this verse, and boom. I mean, the Lord bears witness to it, and He'll use people in that way. But there's so many circumstances in our life where we must hear God, uh, the voice of God, and through His Word uh, in our lives, and in and, and an answer to prayer, our communion with Him in prayer, uh, that is what we need, and I think about how often the Lord does that uh, in our lives, and He certainly did it with the Apostle Paul, and He recognizes that that's, that's true. And so Paul, completely obedient to this word, he accepted his faith in, by faith in his life and obeyed it, and he continued there for a year and six months, 18 months, teaching the Word of God uh, among them. Uh, the, um, uh, the, the teaching has an element of uh, drama involved in it. I'm just kidding. He taught the Word of God. We had this kind of uh, phase in the body of Christ um, a, a decade ago or whatever um, where there would be these uh, uh, drama presentations that would come up. And so uh, the, the people wouldn't be able to sit through teaching anymore. Um, but if people will sit through teaching um, to get a degree or to graduate from high school, I assume if, you, if I can motivate myself there, I ought to be able to motivate myself to be taught to grow in order to grow in my relationship with the Lord. So that's never been a, a big hurdle or, or a problem for me. But drama was tried and then movie clips and all this kind of stuff. And then they, ran, they did the studies and, and they discovered that truth penetrates the deepest in a person's heart and mind when it's spoken. When it's spoken. 
More than drama, more than movies, more than any of that. It is the spoken word that has the greatest impact, where a person will listen and then, and then uh, take it in. And so he taught them uh, and f- uh, for a total of 18 months. The only city he would spend a longer period of time in in his three missionary journeys is coming up in the city of Ephesus where he will spend a total of three years. This was the second greatest investment of Paul's public ministry lifespan uh, into a city was here in the city uh, of, of Corinth. And so he continued there, uh, did exactly as uh, God had commanded him uh, to do. And when uh, Gallio was uh, proconsul of Achaia, Gallio was a, uh, a Roman official in that, uh, that city uh, and kind of the judge of the city, uh, the Jews, the jealous Jews related to the Apostle Paul with one accord, they rose up against Paul and brought him to the judgment seat. And so Paul maybe, wow, okay. I mean, I, mean, I, don't, know, I don't know where in the 18 months this happened. But it's like, oh boy, uh, this is this is where I get my this is where I get my beating. I thought it, I thought it wasn't going to happen. So they brought him to the judgment seat there uh, in Corinth, and the judgment seat is the bema seat. For those of you who've ever been on a footsteps of Paul tour, we just had one a year or more ago, and there's that bema seat in the ancient ruin of Corinth. And that's the very place that Paul was brought to there uh, in the city. And uh, the accusation against Paul was that this fellow persuades men to worship God contrary to the law. And so uh, the accusation, he's, uh, he's uh, teaching people contrary uh, to the Jewish law and the Jewish way. And, uh, and when Paul was about to open his mouth, because, you know, maybe God wasn't going to protect him. And so, but before he could open up his mouth, this is so great. You ever had God save you like in the last nanosecond of a situation? You think, okay, all right, God's not going to do it. He gave me the promise, I know, but God helps those who helps themselves. And so I'm going to jump in here. And uh, he was about to open his mouth, and Gallio said to, uh, to the Jews, if it were a matter of wrongdoing or wicked crimes, I mean, if he was uh, corrupting the city of Corinth, I don't know what you could do to corrupt the city of Corinth more than it was already uh, corrupted, but he said if he's breaking some kind of laws here uh, in the city, uh, O oh Jews, then there would be reason why I should bear with you. Uh, but if it's a question of words and names and of your own law, you got a religious dispute that you're trying to draw Rome into in order to take it off of your hands, uh, look to it yourself, for I do not want to be a judge of such matters. And then all the Greeks then around that judgment seat uh, took Sosthenes, the ruler of the synagogue, and uh, beat him in front of the judgment seat. Uh, but Gallio took no notice of these things. Maybe he didn't see them or he didn't care and he just left that scene of judgment. And so Sosthenes, uh, that ruler, uh, he, uh, he takes and uh, he receives the beating that he had intended for the Apostle Paul. I mean, rarely is, is justice so, um, so uh, perfect. 
uh, in life as it was uh, there. The interesting thing about Sosthenes is it's very possible that Sosthenes later became a Christian because Paul speaks very, very fondly of a Sosthenes as a brother uh, in the greeting of his first letter uh, to the church at Corinth. And so um, this was, uh, maybe this is known as um, almost getting beaten evangelism. We should try that at the mall and uh, see how that works. But very, it could possibly be that some light went on for Sosthenes and, and he becomes a Christian as well. So Paul now, uh, he remained a, a good while there in the city of Corinth. Then he took leave of the brethren, sailed for Syria. Priscilla and Aquila uh, were with him. Uh, he had his hair cut off at uh, Sencrea, for he had taken a vow. We'll talk more about that later in the book of Acts. And he came to the city of Ephesus. And he left then uh, Aquila and Priscilla there in the city uh, of, of, uh, of Ephesus. Uh, he himself entered the synagogue. He reasoned with the Jews there. Uh, they asked him to stay for a longer time with them, but he, he, he didn't consent to it. So he visits very shortly with them, but he took leave of them saying, I must by all means uh, keep this coming feast in Jerusalem. But I will return to you again, God willing. And then he sailed from Ephesus uh, home and Ephesus is uh, Paul's return on his, sec on his third missionary journey or to Ephesus now for a three-year stint. Uh, that fills uh, chapter 19. And so he sailed from Ephesus, and when he had landed at Caesarea, that is the location of his sending church, uh, there that, or, or no, in, in, uh, in, uh, there in, uh, in Israel, uh, and had gone up in, uh, I'm sorry, Caesarea, ascending, uh, Caesarea, uh, okay, time out. When he had landed at Caesarea, there in Israel, and, uh, and gone up, he greeted uh, the church that was located there, then he made his way to Antioch which was his, his sending uh, church. And so we'll stop there tonight because ch uh, verse 23 formally begins. It's an interesting place for a chapter break. Really, there's a reason for it, um, but we won't get into that tonight. We'll pick it up uh, next time. Um, and uh, and the, Paul's third missionary journey in earnest. And so tonight, I'd like to ask the worship team to come forward now and I'd like us to close in a time of worship and um, and they'll they'll lead us in three songs this evening, and uh, I want us just to I've already noticed kind of a hint of it, uh, more than a hint of it in the earlier set of songs that we we sang earlier before uh, the teaching part uh, of the service, and uh, just to stop and to think about um, uh, uh, that God how God keeps His promises, how He kept His promises to the Apostle Paul, and um, I, have, I have walked with the Lord for 43 years. Some of you have walked longer. Some of you have walked less time than that. It's a remarkable thing after 43 years to be able to stand uh, before you and, and declare that God has never failed, not one time, and a promise that He has made in His Word to me. I mean, who else can 
make those kind of promises. People, all kinds of people make promises, but make them and then to keep those, those promises. And, and to just hold on to that thought tonight that God keeps His promises. And even when it looks like it's not going to be kept and you're like before that judgment seat and now I'm going to have to defend myself and carnally God said, and, and, but it's not going to happen. And you've got you to help yourself and you've got to help God out in all of this. And, uh, and, but rather just to hold on to that. He's going to keep His promises in my life. I like this new song that we're singing. I like um, lots of songs. But I like uh, the one, and they're going to close the third song of the set with it the new song, uh, because it stirs up faith. And so that, that song that we've sung the last couple Sundays, I'll praise you anywhere. And I, and I like the line, and I get them all mixed. I get the lines all mixed up. I'm so glad for these screens up, up above. And I sit back by Pastor Bob in the back wall. There's a huge distance between me and the back of somebody's head. Because I get these words all goofed up. I'm singing the third stanza. They're putting the second one up there and all of that. So I'm, I'm not very helpful at all. But one of the things I like about that song is there's a, there's a, 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 a faith element in it. It talks about standing on the shackles and, and boasting in God, if I remember it rightly. And I, I remember the gist of it, if not the exact lines. And there's just a place in our life to not just kind of hunker down and get through uh, the Christian life. And I'm a victim of circumstances. And, and, then, uh, um, and then I... Uh, I walk in a confidence that He's going to keep His promises only after He keeps His promises. But there's no faith prior uh, and the quality of that life that He's going to keep these promises in my life. And then something about seeing that out and, and verbalizing that to remind ourselves most of all. But speaking words of faith and song. It does something good for us. And so let's, as we think about this chapter in Paul's life, a very real person, real human being, not a cyborg. If you'd pulled his skin off, there'd be flesh and blood, and they're not a robot, a real person. And uh, goes through all the things that we go through, and uh, yet he met these things with that faith that God was going to, was not only a promising God, but he was a promise-keeping God. And for us just to remember that tonight as well. Lucy, would you